Good morning, Strong Tower Bible Church. It is good to be here with you. Undone. I feel undone. What a powerful video, Pastor. Thank you for sharing that. I'm not going to pray yet because I want the music to keep playing. <laughs> Is that okay? Last time I got to preach here was the weekend of Independence Day. And the same is true today for me as it was then, is that on this holiday, we hold grief and gratitude together. And there's space for both. There's space for us to rejoice and space for us to come to the altar with all the pain and suffering and grief that we experience being human beings living in a fallen world. And I'm so grateful to be able to do that with you, my family. The family I chose, that's the way we talk about it in our house. The family that chose us. Would you pray with me? Abba, we are so grateful that you love us beyond our wildest imagination that you see us in our desperation and you don't judge us or condemn us, but you have sent your son Jesus to live for us and die for us, to rise again for us. Demonstrating that ultimately there is victory over sin and death because Christ is risen and he is ascended at the right hand next to you, Abba where he advocates for us, where he ministers to us, and he has given us of your spirit who indwells and empowers us. Our Abba, as we look into your word together, as we continue worshiping in this service, may your spirit continue to fill us and guide us to open our eyes to the beauty of Jesus. He is why we are here. He is why we celebrate. He is why we have joy. So as we come to the altar of your holy scripture, may your spirit pierce our hearts. May we not simply be hearers of the word and so deceive ourselves, but doers. May we live this gospel that we proclaim in the name of Jesus and for the sake of his kingdom. Amen. Amen. I was listening came early this morning because my daughter's on keys, which is really fun to see. Uh... <laughs> and she hated that I just said that. <laughs> uh, so we, we came really early um, to practice, and I, was, uh, I like to listen to music, and we were listening to music on the way here, preparation, and the Lord had just was putting a, a song on my heart, and so we listened to that probably three times on the way here. It's a song by a group called Over the Rhine. I don't know if you've ever heard of Over the Rhine. And my favorite song that Over the Rhine has written and performs is a song called All My Favorite People. And the chorus is All My Favorite People Are Broken. And I was just kind of reflecting on my favorite part of that song, all my friends are part saint and part sinner, 
We lean on each other, try to rise above. We're not afraid to admit we're all still beginners. We're all late bloomers when it comes to love. Orphan believers, skeptical dreamers, step forward. You can stay right here. You don't have to go. Is each wound you've received just a burdensome gift? It gets so hard to lift yourself up off the ground. All my favorite people are broken. Believe me, my heart should know. I just want to talk about that today, really. About how difficult it is for us as broken people to rise above the voices in our culture that would tell us that we're not enough, that we're worthless. The political voices, which are polarized these days, that would tell us if we're not on this side, you're no good. If you're not on that side, you're no good. The pluralistic voices that would tell us this is the truth and yours is not, or there is no truth at all. There are voices internally, there are voices externally, always crying out, I think often deeply rooted in the shame of the evil one who whispered voices long ago in the ears of the first man and woman. But what the gospel teaches me is that God delights in broken people. Jonathan preached my sermon before the second psalm. That was the spirit, I think, right? That God loves broken people. He sits at table with them. We heard about that last Sunday. All God's favorite people are broken. <laughs> His heart should know. So I want to talk about what it's like to be the least expected, the broken a person who is sort of an outcast, sidelined by the culture. What it means for Jesus to erupt into that story with delight and healing and rescue. And what it's like for that broken person to rise above the voices and find Jesus. There's a sense in which I think we all are like that person that we're going to look at today together in Mark's gospel. We're all broken and desperately in need of Jesus. And he's calling out to you, just like he calls out to the man in this story. But before we get there, I want to talk about another guy who might have been the least expected, at least in the 19th century when he was living. Now, when we think about this guy, um, we go to like 3D experiences where his artwork, you know, takes up warehouse facilities. This guy's name is Vincent. You might know him, Vincent van Gogh. And Vincent van Gogh is a, a Dutch painter. He's in the post-impressionist, or he was a post-impressionist. Maybe he invented it. I don't know. I'm not an art major. I know there's one in the room, so I'm not even going to look over there. Just in case I'm, I get any of this wrong. <laughs> but he was a post-impressionist painter, and he really, before he got into doing artwork as his vocation, which is the way I think he thought of it, he was uh, the son of a Dutch minister and wanted to become a minister himself. In fact, he went to go sit for a test 
uh, in university, what we might conceive of as seminary these days. He went to sit for his exam, entrance exam for seminary, and he failed. Failed out before he even started. That was Vincent. And he, uh, you know, actually tried to get into uh, another sort of ministry training setting and failed that too. But eventually he found himself serving as a missionary to coal miners in Belgium. It's very interesting. He did this for a long time, really kind of sold all his possessions, lived in a shack, slept on a bed of straw. But when it was time to renew Vincent's contract, the organization that he was working for wouldn't renew it. You see, he was a little bold. He used harsh language. He was uh, unkempt, right? And there was a religious establishment actually at the time that was upset that he wasn't living up to the standard of the priesthood as he was serving those beneath him. But Vincent was living the way he believed he ought. And I think Vincent was living this way because he was captivated by the beauty of Jesus. And Vincent wrote a whole lot of letters, if you're interested in Van Gogh, you can read. He's got hundreds of them out there. But he had a, a buddy, you probably didn't call him a buddy, but I will. He had a buddy called Emil, and he wrote a letter to Emil, and he was just kind of, I mean, it's, this letter sort of goes in a variety of directions, but one of the things that he does in this letter is he talks about Christ as the great artist. He says, Christ alone of all the philosophers, magicians, etc., has affirmed eternal life as the most important certainty, the infinity of time, the futility of death, the necessity and purpose of serenity and devotion. He lives serenely as an artist greater than all other artists, scorning marble and paint, working in living flesh. In other words, he continues, this peerless artist, scarcely conceivable with the blunt instrument of our modern, nervous, and obtuse brains, made neither statues nor paintings nor books. He maintained in no uncertain terms that he made living men immortals. That's the great artist. And I think Vincent ended up dedicating himself to art, creating artworks, because I think he wanted to follow in the footsteps of the great artist as one who was made in the image of the great artist. And though his parents were unhappy with his decision, I wonder how many parents are happy with their children's decision when they become artists or musicians in Nashville, right? <laughs> so let's not, you know, hold them, uh, you know, uh, too accountable here, but his parents were unhappy with his decision, but Vincent believed he could serve God with his painting. But in order to do that, he had to rise above the voices. And if you know Van Gogh's story, his voices weren't only external, and they were external, but they were also internal. He suffered desperately from severe depression. He had to face those voices, the internal an external criticism, the lack of commercial success. It's a, actually, it's a myth. I don't know if you've heard this. It's a myth that he only sold one painting during his lifetime. That's not true. But he, did, he wasn't a commercial success, that's for sure. I wonder what he would think if he went into his own immersive 3D experience. <laughs> I'm not sure you'd be happy about it. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? But he understood that he was made in the image of the great artist. 
And I believe the great artist made him to paint. To paint in ways that nobody had imagined. And for a long time, nobody would appreciate, it seems like. And what does it look like for us? As broken people, to rise above the voices in our lives. Voices that would have us believe that our design, our callings as individuals, our mission as a local church to expand God's diverse kingdom, to advancing that kingdom. Voices that would tell us that we're not enough or that we're deceived in our mission. As I've been told, you're too woke. <laughs> right? What, what would it look like for us to rise above those voices? and embrace our design, embrace our calling as a community in such a way that the kingdom expands and flourishes. What would it look like for us to paint with our lives? That's what I want to look at this morning. We're going to be in Mark chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, digitally or otherwise, please turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark is my, probably my favorite book in the Bible it's one of what we call the synoptic gospels, which is one of the first, you know, the first three gospels that all sound alike, right? John doesn't quite fit the same pattern as the first three, and so the first three are called the synoptic gospels. And Mark is one of them. Mark, my guess, is probably the earliest. I think the other two sort of depend on Mark. That's an ongoing debate, by the way, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. <laughs> which doesn't mean I am. Well, what I want to do is I want to look at Mark's conclusion to a section in the second half of his gospel in chapter 10, where Mark has been discussing what authentic discipleship looks like. It's sort of the counterculture of the kingdom. And we come across this unlikely character who in the structure that Mark wrote his gospel, right, has set up Bartimaeus as the model of Christian discipleship. If you're reading Mark's gospel and you want to see the purest, best example of what discipleship looks like, you can't look to the 12, <laughs> right? right? Where you got to go is toward the end of chapter 10 and find a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, who, by the way, I'm not even sure that was his name because Bar just means son, right? So his name in the text is son of Timaeus. So he may even be unnamed. This unnamed blind beggar is the epitome of discipleship in Mark's gospel. What Bartimaeus does is he rises above the voices in his life to find the one voice that changes everything. And what we learn from this most unlikely model of discipleship is that rising above the voices to find and follow Jesus requires a few things from us. First, I think it requires us to admit our need. We've got to see our brokenness. And quite frankly, there's a lot of us who are unwilling to look. We've got to admit that we have a need. And then we've got to trade in our false securities. Right, Jonathan, I heard you alluding to this. I told you he preached my sermon already. So you get, a, you get to hear a longer version of it now. We got to trade in our false fears. There's a lot of stuff that we're holding on to to keep us safe, to protect us, right? Um, to help us feel fulfilled. And in the end, none of them are enough. And sometimes we're called to trade those things in. 
And thirdly, we've got to move out in faith. And I want to talk a little bit about what that looks like by noticing Bartimaeus in the scene. And so, you know, I'm a guy who studied a lot about the Bible, and I, I just, I'm, we're, we're going to stick to just these few verses. I can talk for a very, very long time about just a few verses, okay? So we're really going to kind of camp out here. What I'd like to do is, first, I want to read the scene in its entirety. So I'm going to read the, it's not a big paragraph, I'm going to read the paragraph, and then we're going to break it into those three parts, Okay? So follow along with me. This is the end of chapter 10, beginning in verse 30, 30, uh, 46. And they came to Jericho, that's Jesus and the disciples. And as he, as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately, by the way, immediately, you might have heard me say this before. It's one of Mark's favorite words. He likes snappy scenes. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So the first thing I want us to pay attention to, right, is that if we're going to really rise above the voices, if we're going to sort of follow the model of Bartimaeus, the epitome of discipleship in Mark's gospel, right? the first thing we have to do is admit that we have need, admit our need. Why would we do that? Well, because we believe that Christ is merciful and that his father, our Abba, is a good, good father who delights to give his children what they need. And, and that this Abba isn't concerned or overwhelmed or irritated by our brokenness. In fact, he delights in being made strong in it. If we're going to really be people of the kingdom who rise above the voices, we got to be honest about where we are. And that's okay. It's okay to have limits and needs. It's okay. And maybe you're hearing me and going, well, of course it's okay. But I really want this to settle in because I think we have a very difficult time embracing this reality. It's okay for you to have limits and needs. It's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to not get it right a time or two. I think I've done it a time or two. It's okay to not be the best at, the most gifted at, to not be the professional ad. Whatever it is, God delights in being made strong in weakness. And he will give you everything you need to be the person he has designed you to be, to bring glory to Jesus and expand his kingdom. And sometimes what you're doing doesn't show up for 100 years after you're gone. 
But imagine if you could get in sort of the upside down economic of Christ's kingdom, imagine what he sees as important. It doesn't become a reality show. Imagine what he sees is valuable, right? It can't be stored in a bank or financial institution. The upside down economic of the kingdom looks very different. And if we could put on the glasses of that kingdom, we might see that God wants to use us in ways that build his kingdom and expand his glory that would make angels marvel but maybe not Hollywood. But if you're interested in that kind of kingdom, it begins with humility. Admit that you have need, and that's what Bartimaeus does here. You see, when Jesus, the disciples are entering into Jericho, uh, Jesus is on the way to, the, to Jerusalem and the cross at this point, by the way, but when they come into Jericho, and they're leaving Jericho with the disciples, and there's this great crowd, because there tended to be a great crowd around Jesus around this time, right? This blind beggar, Bartimaeus, who's sitting by the roadside, he is literally sidelined in the scene. But he's also sidelined in the culture. You really can't get more low than this status, blind beggar on the side of the road, He's sidelined, disenfranchised. He is on the outskirts. And he admits his need. He cries out to Jesus, Jesus, son of David. And by the way, there's some irony here. Because here's this guy blind, right? Can't see, in other words. Somehow, he's able to see with perfect clarity who Jesus is. And I think Mark does that on purpose. He sees Jesus and he sees his need and he sees the answer to his need. And so he cries out, Jesus, son of David, a messianic title, right? That comes out of uh, God's promise to David in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, right? Jesus as Messiah, right, fulfills Israel's expectation that God would come and establish Christ's kingdom. But at this time, right, in Jesus' ministry, they're not able to see that Messiah would come to die on a cross first. But somehow Bartimaeus recognizes Jesus as the son of David, as the anointed one, as Messiah. And there's also this tradition going on during, during Jesus' day, um, and I think he was attaching him to, to, to Solomon here, but, you know, in 2 Samuel 7, where he talks about Jesus as the son of David. There was a tradition that believed uh, uh, that, that Solomon was a powerful healer, right? And so, you know, there might be this sort of sense that, that Bartimaeus is crying out to Jesus, recognizing him as Messiah, but also aware of his ability to meet his deepest need in that moment. And if he could just touch his garment, right, he could be healed, and so what Bartimaeus does in the text is he rises above the voices. The crowd is trying to silence him. And isn't this true for many of us? Trying to live in a way that Christ's kingdom, with both its justice and compassion, are present and visible. Isn't this what we often endure, that the crowd attempts to silence us? The crowd attempts to silence him. And what does Bartimaeus do? I know you all are a church that talks. What does Bartimaeus do? 
he gets louder, <laughs> right? He gets louder. Again, it's hard for us to understand. These stories are very familiar to us, but somebody in his, with his social status, this is serious risk here. But he gets louder. Why does he get louder? Because he wants to find Jesus and he rises above the voices to find Jesus. He knows he's got need and he knows who the solution is. And the same is true for us. I mean, in the end, aren't we all kind of blind beggars? <laughs> we bring nothing to God. We come to the cross filthy, in shame, sidelined, and Jesus stops. He stops. Come here. So the scene continues in 49b. Jesus stopped and called him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. The crowd, boy, are they fickle, right? <laughs> they change real quick. Oh, oh, Jesus, you want to talk to him? Okay. <laughs> Changing their tune. And this might be my favorite part of the scene. In verse 50, and throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Now, don't, don't forget, he's blind, <laughs> right? This guy throws off his cloak and jumps up. And the text doesn't tell us this, but there's a lot of energy. I'm, I'm guessing he ran, right? He knows the son of David, the son of God, Messiah, the one who can heal him is there and nothing is going to get in his way. And if you understand, again, the cultural context in which Jesus is ministering, that cloak for a beggar was a big deal, right? This is what kept him safe from the elements. This was his coat to keep him warm. This was most likely the pallet that he slept on. This was his bed at night. And probably it was the net that he used to catch change as passersby, not even looking at him, tossed coins. In other words, everything Bartimaeus had, he cast away to go find Jesus. That's crazy. <laughs> Look, if you want to follow Jesus... You got to trade in the false securities. You got to give up what you think is going to keep you safe, what you think is going to protect you, what you think is going to make you happy and healthy and good and fulfilled. And you've got to toss it off, jump up and run after Jesus. He is the only security that you can absolutely and utterly depend on in every circumstance and relationship in your life. Why would we do this? Well, because he's faithful. He's never going to leave you or forsake you. Jesus has your back. We admit our need. We trade in our false securities. Uh, let me just say this real quick. If, if you kind of read in the context, earlier in chapter 10, there's another person that Jesus shows up and has a conversation with, sometimes we refer to him as the, the rich young ruler, right, or the rich young man. 
And in Mark's gospel, it's earlier in chapter 10. And I actually think that Mark is setting these two up as a contrast. Very interesting. And the rich young ruler shows up to Jesus. I don't know if you remember the story, but he's, he's kind of upset internally. Like he's got some internal voices going on, right? And he, he wants to be saved. He doesn't know what to do, right? And this is a famous story. Jesus essentially says, you know, sell all you have and come follow me. And he can't do it, right? And it's interesting to me as well as a therapist too, because there's feelings in there, right? Uh, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus is sad, Right, that this man can't give this up. The way I interpret it, you might see it differently than me, but I don't think it was about the money, really. I think the money in that, again, in that cultural context, if you were wealthy as a Jewish person, it was a sign that you were blessed by God. Right? In other words, you had status, not just because you had money, like we would think of it as an American, but, but really because it said something about who you are in the eyes of Yahweh. Right? And this man was afraid to give up his identity, was afraid to get up this, give up this false security and follow after Jesus. And it broke Jesus' heart. Now here, then you show up in the same chapter and Bartimaeus has nothing except this cloak, which is everything for him, right? And when he gets the opportunity to go to Jesus, you know, it's, it's out of here. He jumps up, he takes off after Jesus because Jesus is everything he desperately needs. Bartimaeus sees Jesus as he really is. And I think he sees himself as he really is. Both of those are important. And the kind of final part of this scene begins in verse 51, and, and this is where I think we learn the lesson that if we want to follow Jesus, not only do we need to admit need, right, be willing to, uh, to get rid of, cast off those false securities, but we also have to move out in faith, right? That, that I mean, as a Western American Christian, <laughs> uh, I grew up believing that the most important thing about you was what you thought, right? In fact, I could quote an author who said that. Uh, the most important thing about you is your, the, the data, what you knew to be true about God, how you thought about God. And that's important. Don't get me wrong. Right? But faith is not just about the collection of data. Right? Faith is a lived in relational reality. And you see that discipleship looks like movement at the end of this scene. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. First, he asked for what he needs, right? I'm going to trust you to supply what I most desperately need. And Jesus, as he was prone to do, says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. He heals him. That's not the most interesting part of, the, of, this part of these two verses to me, though. You know what the most interesting part to me is? Jesus tells him to go on his way. He says, go on your way. Right? He, he lets him make his own decision about what his way is. Go your own way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately, Bartimaeus recovers his sight. What's his own way at this point? He's following Jesus. And he followed him on the way. On the way to where? At this point in the story, it's on the way to the cross. 
You see, at this point for Bartimaeus, wherever Jesus is going, that's his way. Wherever he's going, even to the cross, that's Bartimaeus' way. Why would we move out in faith? Because Christ is worthy. He's worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our obedience. He's worthy of our movement. I'm not sure that, you know, Bartimaeus was this guy's actually, actual name. Who knows? But what's true about this scene is that this is the only person Jesus heals in Mark's gospel that is named. Very interesting. And what we learn from this in his moving out in faith is that blind Bartimaeus can see now. And he's no longer sidelined. He's no longer marginalized. He's no longer an outcast on the roadside. He's pictured here as following Jesus on the way. And this reminds me of a lot of stories about people who are sidelined. But there was a point in my life where I was studying 19th century American history, and I discovered a man by the name of W.E.B. Du Bois. I ended up writing a big paper on Du Bois. Yeah, I was just captivated by this guy's story. And Du Bois is the first African-American to graduate from Harvard University with his PhD. Very interesting. This guy was an intellectual giant, right? Uh, he uh, wrote a book. If you only read one thing by Du Bois, you should read the, just the first essay in The Souls of Black Folk. It's powerful. But he's this intellectual giant in the late 19th and early, uh, early 20th centuries. I think he passed away maybe in the 60s or 70s. I can't remember. Um, but he lived for a long time, not always in the United States. I think because of his politics, he got pushed out. But he writes about, the, kind of develops this concept in his work called double consciousness. And he says this in The Souls of Black Folks. He says, it is a peculiar experience, this double consciousness, this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity, one ever feels his two-ness, an American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. Du Bois heard voices. Voices from the broader culture telling him he would never amount to anything, he would never be enough, so much so that he lived with this sense of double consciousness, always aware. But rather than sort of hearing those voices and staying sidelined in his culture, right, Du Bois rises above those voices. And he doesn't rise above those voices to escape. He rises above those voices in order to expand the kingdom, from my perspective, in order to continue on the way of justice. He was a part of this movement called the Niagara Movement, that he joined other activists in pursuing equal rights for blacks. 
And there was a debate going on in the community at the time about what the best way to do that was. And Du Bois was writing and teaching and proclaiming equity and equality. He rose above the voices, and then he followed Jesus on the way. And it was a cross, but it was worth it. It was worth it. What does it look like for you to expand God's diverse kingdom, right? I, I am convinced in my own thinking that all of us are created in the image of God with dignity to worth. I mean, y'all are convinced of that too. But here's the part that I'm just, I'm becoming more and more convinced of, that each of you individually uniquely expresses that image. There is only one of you in all of redemptive history and God has designed for you. And part of our work is to learn how to rise above the voices and figure out who we are. And we do that first by understanding whose we are, I think, right? But figuring out who you are as not only one who is created in the image of God, but is redeemed and being restored for his glory and the expansion of his kingdom. What does it mean for you to pursue justice and compassion? For you to pursue the priorities of the kingdom, the fruit of the spirit, as we heard earlier. For you to live out your faith. How do you do that uniquely? For Du Bois, it was writing and history and philosophy with an intellectual elite. For Van Gogh, it was paintings and drawings and other artworks that weren't even really seen until well after his death. It can be an artist, it can be an intellect, it can be a farmer, it can be a construction worker, it can be an academic, it can be a healthcare worker, it can be anything. I don't know what it is for you. What does it mean for you to live out God's design more fully? For me, I think it's to be a wounded healer. Unfortunately, that required a lot of wounds. <laughs> but I see God's redemptive love in that. And I see how he is shaping me to be Jesus in a very particular way. I got to preach this sermon on Thursday to one of my clients. Our, uh, one of the practices that I work with has a contract with the VA, so I get to work with a lot of veterans. What an honor. When working with a lot of veterans, I also work with a lot of PTSD, a lot of trauma. And there's one client that I get to work with. Um, it's such an honor to sit with him, uh, to hear his story, to work through his pain. And this client was kind of just struggling with a question about why, I, I won't tell you the details, but, but essentially it was clear that God was speaking to him. <laughs> And he was confused. Why would God speak to me? And I was thinking, you are exactly the kind of person he likes to talk to. Let me tell you about this dude named Bartimaeus. <laughs> and I was like, I'm preaching this Sunday. <laughs> God delights in you. He doesn't need you to be famous or wealthy or powerful. He needs you to be you. 
and he will rescue you and heal you and he will set you on the path behind him because he's going to tread the road down first for you and following him turns out to be the safest place you could ever be. What does it look like for you to follow him? I don't have the answer for you. But there are people in this community who know you and love you, who have insight, maybe into how God has designed you and what gifts he's given you and how he wants you to serve and follow. But just start asking the question. If you don't know, ask the question. What does it mean for me to follow Jesus? You know, start with admitting you have some needs. Trust God to work. Trust him to find you and to stop and call for you. Whatever those things are that are getting in the way, cast them off. Jump up. Take off after Jesus. You won't regret it. Although it will hurt. (laughs) Trade in those false securities. And move out in faith. Risk on faith. I believe, you know, this is how we live out the kingdom. This is how Bartimaeus did it. What a model. (laughs) What a model. I just, I, this, one of my favorite things about God is that his kingdom doesn't need me to be anything special. He makes me special. And the same thing is true for you. You can be sidelined, in the culture, blind and begging. And then all of a sudden, you show up one day as the model of discipleship (laughs) in the inspired word of God. Wow. That's how God does it. He's an artist. He's an artist. Who is he designing you to be? How are you going to live as that artwork? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for loving us as we are. Thank you that you find us in our brokenness. Thank you that you redeem and restore us, that you are recreating us as the master artists. And we are in your display case our lives as we live them fully for your glory and the sake of your kingdom as we live them according to our design, right? Father, as we live those lives, they point to the great artist. They point to you. Would you help us? Would you help us to embrace this call more fully, more authentically, We know that we are desperately dependent on your spirit for that. But we thank you that you delight in being made strong in weakness, that you stop, you call out to us, that you heal and you lead as we follow on the way. Help us to follow well. We ask these things in the name of our risen Savior, King Jesus. Amen.